Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. You are listening to The Mission on Triple uh, R 102.7 FM. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners from which I'm broadcasting this evening. That's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Uh, some of you might actually have been listening to me via, you know, on Wutherong land, Tunnerong land, or Bunurong uh, land in the, uh, in the south. And it is uh, actually the Bunurong from which my one and only guest this evening is from, Bruce Pascoe, Uncle Bruce Pascoe. Uh, I did a pre-record interview with him. It goes for almost 50 minutes, so I can't sit here and uh, pontificate too much this evening. I need to get on with the show, but I'd like to thank Charlie for Double Bounce done an excellent job filling in over the past few weeks. Nick Brown will be in the chair next week. I'd also like to thank Rachel Hocking for filling in for me last week while I um, uh, did a bit of a stint on the on the breakfasters with uh, Natalie Harris and uh, Rachel Short. Had a blast with them. Rachel did a fantastic job. I'll listen to the show. So thank you, sis, if you're, uh, if you're listening. So um, basically, get yourself a cuppa, uh, relax into a nice comfy chair, roll whatever it is that you might want to roll. The interview is in two parts, so um, we'll play part one and then uh, roll on with part two. Triple R. Our guest this evening will be familiar to many of you, but even if he is, let me give you a refresher. Bruce Pascoe is a Bunurong, Ewan and Tasmanian-born man, and he was born in Richmond. He's been writing for adults and children for many years. His novels and short stories have won numerous awards, most notably for Dark Emu, for which he won both the Book of the Year Award and the Indigenous Writers' Prize in the 2016 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. He has a new book entitled the Young Dark Emu, A True History. The book is a revised version aimed at uh, young readers of his 2014 masterpiece, Dark Emu. Marcia Langton wrote of uh, Dark Emu, Dark Emu was a profound challenge to conventional thinking about Aboriginal life on this continent. He details the Aboriginal economy and analyses the historical data showing that our societies were not simple hunter-gatherer economies, but sophisticated with farming and irrigation practices. This is the most important book in Australia and should be read by every Australian. So with that praise, I welcome Uncle Bruce Pascoe to Triple R. Lovely to be here. Thank you. You've, um, you've dedicated your life to educating people across the country about, you know, Australia's true history. Um, what instigated uh, Young Dark Emu in particular? Uh, look, I think it's just so important that uh, all Australians are aware of um, the real nature of their country, um, how it was managed in the past, and um, why it was managed in that way. You know, we not only do we uh, miss out on our history, but we also miss out on our land management. Yeah, you, the, the sad irony of, um, you know, the hours and hours and years and of research that you've put into to putting these pieces together is that a lot of it is based on the first-hand accounts of um, invaders. Um, yeah. How did you find that process? I, I found it a bit sad. Um, it was a shock to me to read um, some of the things I read because, you know, having had an Australian education, I was unaware of all of it. Um, almost all of it was new to me. And um, so it just shows you how badly prepared our young people are for the truth of their country and... The thing that saddened me most was that it was so readily available. Um, you know, I mm. had to crawl through libraries and archives and things like that, but it wasn't rocket science or brain surgery or anything like that. It was uh, readily available. Other people had read it 
and uh, it had been denied our people. Yeah, I've obviously... All, um, all Australians, actually. Yeah, yeah, we're, and we've been poorer for it. Um, uh, reading Dark Emu, I've, you know, I've you know, read it a few times now, I just found myself on, on numerous occasions just getting so angry. Um, yeah. You know, angry um, for a number of reasons, just at the, the total you know, and um, willful destruction of, you know, the culture of our people, the practices of our people. Mm. But what I found just as infuriating was the, I guess, the arrogance. I, th- I think, you know, the, the, the first, you know, settlers, for want of a term, um, recognised that some of these practices were unique and some of them were innovative and some of them had been born through thousands of years of uh, practice and refinement, but their own arrogance couldn't allow them to actually embrace any of those practices. No, Australia began as... um you know, in 1778 as a racist country and uh, it's distorted our view of um, our country ever since. Um, You have to work really hard um, to look at the things that Aboriginal people had built um, and the land practices they employed and describe them as the work of savages. Yeah, yeah, and, um, you know, just seeing Aboriginal people as, yeah, as you said, no more than um, than, than uh, savages. Um, I think one of the great things about your work, and it must be one of the most rewarding things, is that from my perspective, it um, has actually empowered a lot of Aboriginal people to start referring to themselves by, you know, which tribe they belong to. So, you know, if I'm putting together a short bio for something or other, I'll always say, you know, Daniel James, Yorta Yorta Man. And I think you know, a lot of that's a byproduct of um, your work and, and the work of people like you. Yeah. A lot of people have contributed to that, brother. Um, yeah. You know, we've been, we've been well led by heroes and champions um, ever since the invasion and obviously before it. Um, but... Yeah, it's the thing that um, pleases me most is that Aboriginal people um, feel um, that well, they tell me that they feel more confident about expressing their point of view um, than they did before, and um, that gives me uh, an enormous amount of confidence. And I see a lot of young people um, starting to fight back. Yeah, I think um, as all cultures should, our culture is um, continuing to evolve. Um, and that is some feat given that, you know, in many parts of the country, and particularly here in Victoria, I don't think people uh, realise that, you know, Victoria was, if not the most populated place in Australia, one of the most populated mm. places in Australia. Yeah. And yet the remnants of that rich and, you know, millennia um, history was pretty much obliterated. Yeah. Yeah, it... Um you know, it's um, it's very sad to think back on it. Um, yeah. And, and sometimes it's easier not to go there because it's it is so painful to think what the place must have been like and how rich the lives of our people were in culture and um, produce and um, relationship to the country. And um, very very sad to think that all of that was lost out of the the prejudice and arrogance and racism of the British who arrived. But the, the British did it to other countries as well. It wasn't just here. Um, Europeans, there was a few hundred years of European culture where they just butchered Indigenous populations all around the world. It wasn't just us. And it was something in the mindset of the European at that time, which is probably continuing, um, that allowed them to do that within the confines of their own Christianity. Uh, and we have to address those things because they're still having impacts around the globe. I was talking to First Nation Canadian people a few weeks ago, and all of those things are still impacting on them, exactly the same as they are on us. And that's why we need a better history. We need to actually know the truth um, about what our people were doing so that we might be able to repair the damage that has been done to the soil and, and the land. And, um, you know, if we, if we just started 
employing a tenth of the knowledge of Aboriginal people um, about how to use Australia, we'd be we wouldn't be having um, carbon emission problems as we are. We wouldn't be having um, Adelaide go without water. Um, we wouldn't be having millions of fish die in the river if we just employed some of the common sense principles um, of Aboriginal people. I think once you know some of the, the true history and, and you know, it, of Australia, but particularly here in Victoria, some of the places you then visit become quite eerie because a lot of these places brandish the, the names of those places as spoken by the traditional owners at the time of European invasion. So I'm thinking of, I can reel off dozens and dozens of names, but I'm thinking about where I grew up, um, uh, a town called Euroa in um, uh, northeast Victoria. Now, that's Tanarong for, um, for Joyful. And yet, if you go there today, um, and certainly growing up there as a kid, you had no you had no clue as to whose land you were on. You had no clue as to how you know the Sevens Creek there, as it's now known, would have been utilised by Aboriginal people. How it would have been a source of life for them. And the same could be said for so many other places, like um, you know Benalla just up the road, in which um, you know a, a famous mass well an infamous massacre took place um, in, the, in the late 1840s. Um, once you know that type of history, it, it just makes you just go um, deeper into the place itself. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It helps um, heal your relationship with the land. Oh, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. yeah, and um, look, we've, we can't, we have to know the past. We can't dwell on it. We have to. We've got to look after our kids and our grandkids, and um, make sure that we can get the best out of the country that we can. And when I say in the best out of the country, I mean the people. Um, we've flogged the poor old country to death. Uh, we need to respect Mother Earth and um, treat her far more gently than we do. It's criminal um, what we've done to the soil in many parts of Australia. We need to treat her better. We need to treat her as our mother um, and look after her and, um, so that she can look after us. Because at the moment, we're, we're crippling her ability to look after us. You're listening to the Mission on Triple R. My name is Daniel James. I'm speaking with Uncle Bruce Pascoe um, about his new book, uh, Young Dark Emu. You talk about, um, uh, in both Dark Emu and Young Dark um, Emu about how Aboriginal people had protected the the soil before um, mm. European settlement. Do you want to just um, you know describe some of the practices and what some of the the early invaders found in relation to soil? Yeah, our people um, relied on Australian plants. Um, you know, and it's kind of ridiculous to even think that that's uh, radical. Um, but Europeans were so obsessed with their own culture that they brought their own plants. They dismissed everything of any kind of uh, Aboriginal provenance and um, refused to acknowledge that Aboriginal people were actually farming. Um, and so we, we brought down Northern Hemisphere plants and... Um, fed them fertiliser and water as northern hemisphere plants need in this country and we destroyed the soil in many places. Uh, some places have lost 13 metres of topsoil. That's absolutely wow. criminal um, because we've used hard-hoofed animals. We've insisted on ploughing a land which probably should never have been ploughed. I'm not talking about every corner of the country. There are some corners that can survive ploughing. But when we use perennial plants like the old people did, perennial Australian plants that are adapted to the climate and adapted to the pests and diseases, um, you don't need chemical fertiliser. You don't need um, pesticide. You don't need any extra water. And the root masses of these plants are massive. It's actually every Australian child should uh, see a stem of kangaroo grass and then be shown what what it's like underneath the soil. It's, you know, ten times as large underneath the soil. That's what holds the soil together, and that's where the nutrients come from, deep 
deep beneath the soil. They're Australian plants. They know that to get their moisture, they have to go deep. And that's where the richness in Australian soils lies, um, with these massive root systems. And then we replace it with wheat that's got a piddly little bloody root system and um, can't hold the soil together. We have to plough every year so we can plant it, and we're destroying the soil in the process. You know, Sir Thomas Mitchell saw our Murnong growing right across the Western District, and probably um, the biggest field of agricultural endeavour the world has ever seen. And and the sheep destroyed it virtually in one night. Um, whenever the sheep went, they destroyed that plant. And that system of growing food, we're trying to replicate down here on my farm now because Aboriginal people were companion planting. Um, they were using perennials, Australian perennials, companion planting, and the whole system worked so well and... Uh, Mitchell was so impressed, so was Lieutenant Gray, so was Sturt. All of them extolled the beauty of the country, its productivity. Um, but people like Mitchell hardly seemed to recognise that it was the agency of Aboriginal people. I think, um, yeah, also, you know, the, the, the compacting of the soil, you know, had, uh, you know, a terrible effect on, on, our, on our waterways as well. Mm. Yeah, the Aboriginal people, when they saw what sheep had done, were in deep sorrow because they saw the runoff happening and they knew that erosion would follow. And they had done everything they could to stop that erosion. They had terraced the hillsides of Melbourne in the production of yam, which um, prevented erosion from happening. Um, and they could see straight away that European techniques were going to destroy the soil. Um I want to touch on um, on language. You've been um, uh, heavily involved in, in trying to revive languages um, uh, here in Victoria in particular. Where do you even start with something like that? With language revival? Yeah, language. You go, go to your elders um, and ask them for any words they know. Um, if you're lucky enough to have people who still speak languages... Um, make sure it's all recorded with their permission, obviously, um, and then you go back to the public record. Um, you know, go to the, the missionaries. Some of them uh, recorded Aboriginal languages. Some of them were too prejudiced to bother. Um, go to the surveyors' records. They, they're full of Aboriginal place names. Um, go to... Um, police magistrates' documents and go to the police themselves because they were heavily involved in the lives of Aboriginal people and despite the their ill treatment of, of the old uh, people, they were still recording individual people's names and places and events. Um, all of those things, you know, helped to build up a, a language list. Well, you're giving, a, you're giving us a masterclass <laughs> here, so we're much appreciative um, of, of that. Um, I want to talk um, briefly about the, the, the role of missions in, in the revival of Aboriginal culture and, I guess, the birth of what I would suggest would be the birth of the social justice movement here in, um, mm. uh, in Australia. I don't think people uh, usually equate missions with a place as a place of uh, revival of culture, and they certainly don't um, uh, think of these missions as, as a place where the seeds were sown for the, the the modern social justice movement. And again, I guess I'm being a little bit biased here when I'm thinking of um, places like Cumbragunja in, in, in particular. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, how uh, the mission system worked in Victoria? Um, yeah, I do. Um, are you related to Shadrach James? Yeah, that's right. He's um, yeah. my great great grandfather. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my my father um, and his father knew uh, knew Shadrach James um, through uh, both sport and church. Oh, there you go. Um, so yeah. Well, and, and that's because you're you've got. In your family, you've got that heritage of um, activism. Yep. Um, you know, sometimes people think that the church wasn't active in um, social welfare, but sometimes they were. Sometimes they worked against it. 
Um, but some of our people were able, in the shadow of the church, to get some things done. So it's not all bad, um, but even the best of missionaries um, were prejudiced against our culture in many ways. You know, they would allow us to do some things but not speak language or, um, you know, they would allow us to speak language but not talk culture. You know, it was very, very hard to find anyone who, you know, totally embraced Aboriginal culture. You know, even James Dawson in the Western District, who everybody refers to, he was still sitting on our land. You know, he was yeah. still a colonist. Um, and it just stuns me that people don't realise that, you know, finding the best European um, doesn't necessarily mean you've found a very good European. Um, and it distorts our history. But, yeah, the missions did an incredible amount. I, I think of the Mobornes, um, mm -hmm. you know, who protested their treatment at places like Lake Conda. Um, you know, the Lovett family were always heavily involved in yep. social justice. Um, you know, uh, their cousins um, were and still are, and all of those families had a. We're continually protesting. Like I said before, we've been really well led. Um, you know, William Cooper uh, yeah. was was a massive intellect, a massive Australian intellect. You know, black or white doesn't matter. You know, he recognised what was happening to the Jewish people in World War Two before anyone else in this country, it seems. And he walked to Parliament House on, on his own to protest to the Australian government um, that the the Jews of Europe needed to be protected. That was... Um, that... He's got a special place in the... Um, in Israel, um, because they recognised that he was a human who recognised them as humans and um, wanted to intervene. Uh, whereas in Australia, um, people were, I don't know, seeming to let it happen. Well, it's 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 a, a particular trait, I think, um, of Australian and a lot of European history is uh, history is written by those who see what they want to see. Um, just in relation to, to William Cooper, um, the the guy was an absolute giant, and he remains a giant. And um, I, you know, implore anyone that um, wants to find out more about William Cooper just to um, to to Google him, search him. There are books in libraries about him. There's a book um, uh, that I came across. I can't recall its name, but it's basically got um, um, most of his correspondence, a lot of the petitions that he signed trying to um, improve the lot of his people, particularly off Cumbragunja. Um, yeah, do yourself a favour, as Molly Meldrum would say, and um, look up uh, William Cooper. Um, like you said, the story of missions, of course, wasn't um, all about uh, social justice and, and rebirth. Um, it was mostly about um, oppression. One of the most compelling stories um, around that sort of missionary period um, is the story of uh, Corin Dirk. Um, do you want to just give people an overview of what Corin Dirk is and what it represents? Yeah, Corin Dirk was a, a refuge for Aboriginal people. Um, the Victorian government um, was parceling Aboriginal people up in into various missions around the country and around the state, and um, Corin Dirk was one of them. Um, they had a, a really good um, farm manager there, uh, Green. He um, was kind to Aboriginal people, recognised Aboriginal capabilities, and uh, they started farming that land at Corinderk and got very good at it. And, you know, why were they good at it? Because they were used to it. Aboriginal people knew how to use the soil, knew how to make mm. plants grow. So it was just second nature. Um, so they got very good at it. They won prizes at the Melbourne show. Um, but non-Aboriginal people in the district and across the state were jealous of their success and petitioned the government to break up the mission so that they could get this land that was being so productive. You know, a lot of the Europeans thought, oh, they must have the best land because they've got the best produce. Mm. No, they were just the best farmers. And 
it, it's a very sad state of events. Um, Barak, that great leader, that great intellectual, um, was the senior man. And, um, you know, when the when Green was kicked out of Corrindirk, I'd be too good uh, for being too good a Christian, um, he was replaced by a much more repressive regime. And um, when William Barak um, was trying to take his son David to hospital, uh, that missionary refused to allow William Barak to take his son in a dray to the hospital. Um, Barak, with a broken leg, um, had to carry his son to the hospital and was refused permission to enter. He walked all the way from Hillsville to Melbourne to take his son to hospital, was refused permission. Fortunately, there was one decent woman there, Anne Bond, who um, who took them in. But unfortunately, uh, David died. It's a really sad event because that boy had been inculcated with the law and would have been an incredible leader for his people. But he died, later William Barrack died, and um, a, lot of the, a lot of that pain, a lot of that loss could have been avoided, except uh, Australia and Victoria were so deeply racist, uh, so deeply um, oppositional and aggressive towards Aboriginal culture. I think back on that, that time a lot, and think what opportunities were being held out to non-Aboriginal people. Opportunities for um, some kind of joint program of land management, joint cultural management, and all of them denied. Um, Australia would be a very different place if it hadn't been. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You're listening to The Mission. I hope you're enjoying the conversation I recorded with Uncle Bruce Pascoe about, um, well, primarily primarily about dark gaming, but about a whole range of matters. We'll have part two of that coming up uh, shortly. Um, I alluded to a book uh, in the first half of that interview um, that uh, actually has all of William Cooper's, well, not all, but a vast majority of William Cooper's correspondent over his his lifetime, over his life of uh, activism. That book is called Thinking Black, William Cooper and the Australian Aborigines League. Uh, it's available online. I think you can download it as a PDF, and it is in the in some libraries. I know it's in the um, City of Melbourne libraries. So, yeah, if you want to find out more about his story that we uh, briefly touched upon, uh, by all means, go and check that out. You're listening to the Mission on Triple R. My name is Daniel, and I'm speaking with um, Uncle Bruce Pascoe, um, author of Dark Emu, and now author of uh, Young Dark Emu. Um, Corin Dirk. Uh, was pretty much the um, uh, from Corinduk. People were then, uh, for want of a better term, distributed to um, other missions and and, and um, uh, camps across across the state, weren't they? Yeah, they uh, were all over all over the state. Some um, stayed open for a long time. Um, you know, places like Condor. Tires, but the other other ones were, um, you know, began and were, were finished at the whim of you know churches or at the whim of government, and uh, people were dispersed. Um, anyone who protested, you know, I'm you know I'm thinking some famous families, um, you know the the Mobornes, the Coopers. The Clarks, the Thorpes, you know, all of those families, they stuck their head up above the parapet and as soon as they did, they were kicked out of the mission and sent to another one, um, sometimes in Western Australia, you know, as far away as you could possibly get. It was a, a an act of war uh, to separate families like that uh, so that you were um, breaking down the dissent, uh, the protest, um, people who were protesting uh, 
on behalf of their people, the ill treatment of their people, were separated from the family, taken far away, and uh, completely removed from their culture. It was the cruelest thing you could do to an Aboriginal person was to take them off their country, and it happened routinely. And you know, it was clever. The people who designed that scheme knew what they were doing. It was clever, but it was also bloody vicious. Yeah, it was um, basically cultural genocide by by pen at the hands of clerks. And you know, speaking of that, there's that, of course, the um, the infamous um, half caste act, which basically um, uh, ensured that um, anyone that was deemed a half caste couldn't live um, on um, certain missions or couldn't live on their traditional lands. They would be um, uh, prohibited from that, and that would often mean that they were prohibited from living with their parents, their grandparents. Uh, their elders, and that was a um, a, a sly way of ensuring that uh, that culture uh, wasn't passed down, or if it was, it was somehow diminished through trauma. Yeah, good policy. If you wanted to destroy a, an opposition campaign, um, that would do it as well as anything else. But those days aren't over, brother. No, they're not. Still active. Um, you know, discrimination against Aboriginal people, against half-castes, uh, trying to break down the last vestige of um, connection to country and family, still going on. You look at how, um, you know, fair-skinned Aboriginal people are treated by the press, um, you know, not just Andrew Bolton, people like that, but the the press in general, you know, because we're pale and because we're active, we're seen somehow to be a threat and to have almost been, uh, you know, working against the state just mm. by identifying. Um, and, you know, that's very sad. I know all Aboriginal people suffer it in the workplace. Um, they suffer it in the public arena and you suffer on the sports field um, every day of your life at some stage or other you've got to defend the fact that you identify as an Aboriginal person and your, your skin's pale. People don't ask you about your family, they don't ask you about your connection, they ask you about your skin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. That's happened to me countless times. I can't think of the number of times I've been in a social setting where, um, you know, the topic of Aboriginal affairs or Aboriginality has been raised and you're talking to a person and they're talking about them. They're not talking about you. They're talking about Aboriginal people or the Aborigines, um, often not knowing that, um, you know, I'm a Yorta Yorta man myself. And so um, once you actually... Um, point that out to them, or you pick you pick them up on being racist, which has happened <laughs> several times um, very awkwardly for um, for the racist person in, um, in my presence. Um, it it changes the whole dynamic of the social interaction, and there is this kind of scepticism that 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 sort of leads to a sort of a disbelief as well. How can you be Aboriginal if you if your skin's that light, and that is something that we here in the southern states, and in Victoria in particular, and um, face uh, on a day to day basis. Yeah, they'd never ask a Jewish person that. Um, they would never ask an Italian that. Um, they would never ask a Korean that. Um, you know, but it's just Aboriginal people because it's that vestige of racism that's still there. You know, in, somewhere in the the deep nub of the brain, um, people are saying, oh, shit, we thought we got rid of you lot, you know. Mm. And he, uh, you know, you're pale skin, you're resurrected as an Aboriginal person, that's what they say. Um, and it, it's a shock to them. But our, our own people aren't um, completely innocent of that either. Absolutely. Know, as Aboriginal people, we have to stick together. Um, and if you want to know someone's background, ask them. You know, don't bloody go on Facebook, ask them. Ask them who their dad was, who their mum was, who their granddad was. You know, and, you know, in, in my case, 
um, people would say, oh, you know, you're talking about your great-grandmother. Well, of course I bloody am, you know. <laughs> I am who I am, and, you know, I, I, I want to understand who I am, and you can only do that through your family. A lot of, lot of things have happened to my family, and, you know, you could regret that they made that decision then and that decision then, but we weren't there. We don't know what it was like to be black in Tasmania at that time. We don't know what it was like to be black on the streets of Melbourne at that time. You can make all sorts of decisions to save your children. Um, and, you know, I, I, I hear stories like this all the time from, um, you know, pale-skinned Aboriginal people who um, are incredibly close to their culture but feel that the rest of the country wants them to um, give it up. You know, you could pass as you could pass as a white person. Why don't you? You know, that's the assumption. Um, you know, why would? But from my point of view, I say, why would you deny? Why would deny your family? I think um, there is, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of um, lateral violence within within Aboriginal communities from from time to time. I, I guess that's one of the fears that I personally have with. Um, uh, the, the treaty process here in Victoria. I, I'm, I'm try to remain optimistic, and I am optimistic about that process. But the opportunity for Aboriginal people to enforce lateral violence on each other, as we delve deeper and deeper into our own histories and our connectedness to particular tribes and, and, and cultures and, and, and parts of the land, potentially it opens up that aspect of um our culture and if we do that we're letting um we're letting the people that try to eradicate us win Mm. yeah and i think we have to remember what the old people did you know our our old legislators old aboriginal legislators from prior to uh the invasion they were brilliant uh how they uh, protected and arranged society uh, for the benefit of the land um, and, secondly, for the benefit of the people. But if we think back to how the old people were, uh, and they, they had an Aboriginal visitor come from some other part of the country for whatever reason, they, that person would be brought within the fold of that uh, community um, because the whole intent of the law was that everybody was connected yeah, and everyone must stay connected. And, you know, things like native title legislation and, um, have worked against that. Because it has. Based on white law, it's adversarial politics, so there's a, a small bucket of money, and the fewer people who can qualify to share that money, uh, the better uh, in white terms. And our people fall for that and start dividing it up and denying their brothers and sisters, their aunties and uncles, uh, their Aboriginality. You know, we know who our great-grandmothers are. We know who, who our great-grandfathers are, and everybody else does. And we shouldn't fall for the thimble and pea of uh, fighting amongst ourselves because the scraps on the table are so small. Don't accept the scraps. If they're inadequate, don't accept them. And I'm, I'm bloody sick of government. Mm. Um, and I'm refusing um, to jump through the hoops um, of government. I'm trying to do it purely through the community, working with the strong um, young people in community and saying, well, we'll come up with the idea and we'll deliver it if government want to help us well and good. But if they want to design it, we refuse because what they did was they designed native title, and I I refuse to have anything to do with it. Um, I refuse to have anything to do with um, the, the, the dole, you know, these grants and things like that. They're just the dole in another form because as soon as you accept it, they've got you on a leash. I think, I think... I think we should be, you know, like our old people were, absolutely free. I think the classic example of what you're talking about, um, particularly in relation to the Native Title Act, is, you know, for us here in Victoria to prove 
native title according to that Act, according to the criteria set by legislators, is almost impossible because they stipulate an ongoing traditional um, relationship with the land. Now, according to the criteria that they set here in Victoria, that's impossible. Mm. Yeah, well, and we should um, we should not uh, agree to that. We shouldn't try and prove that we have. Um, what we should do is just say we should do things rather than try and write them on a bit of paper. Every Aboriginal person should do some cultural act every day um, in defence of their people. Um, you know, whether it be to greet grandfather, son at um, dawn, um, or grandmother moon at night, um, whether it be to you know, thank Mother Earth for the production of the, you know, the salad greens in the backyard. Um, whatever it be, um, we do our own private cultural acts, um, and uh, then we, when they turn to us and say, you know, prove that you're Aboriginal, you say, well, I don't have to prove it because I do it. Mm. I do it every day, and it's none of your business. If you want to, if you're really interested, I'll talk to you about it. But really, it's none of your business. And uh, I'm an Aboriginal person. I take part in my culture. Um, so, you know, don't ask me to find a reason to separate from my brother, my sister, my cousin. And an example of, of, of you know, that way of thinking is you reflected recently about the the mass um, kill of um, fish in the in the Darling River mm. below the Medindi Lakes and mm. all of the coverage around that was, well, you know, what about the farmers? You know, what about um, this, that and the other? And you asked a simple question, well, who's thinking of the fish? What about, what about the trees? Um, we're all connected to these things. Um, um, and yet, you know, the dialogue and the coverage hasn't been around that. Yeah, Aboriginal people had a really peculiar idea about rivers. Um, they thought they should be watering them. Um, and, you know, when Europeans see water, they say, ah, oh, that's mine. I've got to have that. I've got to use that. Instead of thinking that that water is a blessed resource for the whole world. It's not a resource at all. It's just water. Yeah. You know, it's water for the earth. And we, if we use it, we have to ask for it. You know, do the old Aboriginal thing. If you walk up to a tree and you want some sticks, you ask the tree, can, tree, can you um, allow me uh, to take that? And that simple act of asking makes you more conservative. And mm. farmers should do that. They should go to the river in the morning and say, I've, I've planted out a, a whole paddock of corn can I have the water? And the, and the river might say, you've planted the wrong plant, brother. You know, corn is too thirsty. I don't have enough water for you. As soon as you start asking the country and then listen to country's answer, uh, you become a much more conservative person. You know, cotton, corn, they're the wrong plants for this country. Yeah, they belong here. We need to go back to the old people's plants and we need to respect Mother Earth. You know, our yields, the old traditional yields weren't as great. But then we did it for 120,000 years uh, without fish kills like that. So we have to we've just got to be more conservative. Aboriginal people are really, really conservative. The real radicals in this country are Clive Palmer and his mates. Mm. You know, we should stop referring to ourselves as being radicals. We're the conservatives, and the radicals, you know, are Western Mining and Clive Palmer and. Um, you know, Tony Abbott, they're the real radicals. You're listening to The Mission um, on Triple R 102.7 FM. My name is Daniel James. I am honoured to be speaking with Uncle Bruce Pascoe, the author of Young Dark Emu, A Truer History. Um, let's turn to that latest publication now, which is very hard to get in Melbourne at the moment because it's uh, running off shelves everywhere. Um, what inspired you to do a revised version of the original Dark Emu for a younger audience? Because I love my country. Mm -hmm. We need our kids to know the truth of their country, be they black or white. 
Um, otherwise, we'll keep on mistreating her. Uh, and we can't afford to mistreat her. We've seen the results of um, European-style treatment of the land. We have to repair it. Uh, we have to know how the old people use the country. Uh, we won't be poorer for it. Uh, economically and spiritually, we'll be richer for it. Absolutely. But we do have to learn those lessons, and I want to start with the kids. Um, I don't care whether they're uh, Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal. You know, what the classes I go into... I went into Glebe Public School the other day and, you know, I, I saw a whole bunch of kids um, all playing together, sort of sharing their lunches and, um, you know, there were some obviously Aboriginal kids amongst them and a, a few there who I, I thought were probably Aboriginal. I knew some of them, um, you know, and their families, but there were some white kids there as well um, and some Asian kids. And I thought that's how the country ought to be. You know, we ought to, we ought to know our own cultures you know, we know the Asian culture, and you know the lunchbox will be different. Um, we we know the Italian culture, the lunchbox will be different. We know Aboriginal culture, the lunchbox will be different. But we can all do stuff together. Um, but people have got to recognise that Aboriginal people are the first people here, and it's not we're not pleading a special case or anything like that. We're just saying, look at our history. We are the most successful culture on earth. You're cutting off your nose to spite your face if you deny us. That's exactly right. I had a friend um, who uh, you know has got a got a child at primary school, and um, every morning they do an acknowledgement of country, and um, the Aboriginal flag is is flying alongside the um, the Australian flag. And one parent commented to to her, "It's like, well, you know, um, shouldn't they just get over it? You know, what's what's the, what's mm-hmm. the deal? You know?" And um, I just said to her, "Well, next time, you know." they ask what the point of acknowledgement of country is. Just just tell them it's a reminder that on this land for at least 60,000 years um, has lived the most successful society the earth has ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, books like Dark Emu are, are, are doing that. I was going to ask you about, um, before we finish, um, whether you're optimistic, but... Of course you're optimistic because you produce books like this. Um, mm. I think um, I myself, I'm very optimistic as well. I think that the generation that is coming up through the ranks now, the, the kids that are at primary school, the kids that are at um, high school, um, are really beginning to embrace um, Aboriginal culture, whether they're, you know, no matter what their background is, and it's um, books like yours that um, are enabling that. Is there any talk of um, uh, this latest effort being um, part of the school curriculum? Um, look, I hope so. Um, look, the book has gone out um, pretty quickly and uh, pretty well. I think it's kind of inevitable, but you can't rely on inevitabilities. Um, you know, the Euler statement was uh, such a mild and um, compassionate document so inclusive that, you know, you could be suspect, uh, expected to assume that it would um, be taken up readily mm. by a grateful country, but it wasn't. So you can't assume anything. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that, um, you know, the curriculum authorities will see it as a useful document, but it's not just um, dark in you. You know, there are, there are other fantastic uh books and resources around, you know, Anita Heiss's Am I Black Enough For You? Yeah. Uh, every Australian kid should read that. Um, but there is so much around, um, you know, great books, you know, by Jared Thomas, Dub Leffler, uh, you know, all, all of those uh, fabulous writers um, and filmmakers. We have to make sure that they're all included and... Um, you know, I was saying to a mob in Canberra the other day at the Children's Book Council, you know, um, in Western um, uh, literature and art, you know, the creator is lauded, is the champion, you know? Mm. But in Aboriginal uh, culture, it is the story that is the champion. You know, the the author of it or the, the singer, the dancer... Um, is just doing their job, you know, they're just doing their culture, but it is the story itself which is the champion. And uh, it struck me the other day that um, 
you know, people get a bit enthusiastic about dark immune and stuff like that. But I wonder, I hope it's not the case that it's a bit of a cop-out. Um, you know, I hope that those same people um, are also saying deep within their heart, um, we're going to change things in this country. I, I, I have to um, say... Got... Take an opportunity to, you know... Yeah. Um, you know, suck up to one black man. I don't. I really don't think that's the case. I don't think um, it's seen as token or a cop out at all. I think the books are actually changing people's perspective of um, Australian history, their perspective of Aboriginal people, and I think it is causing them to reflect on why things are the way they are today. And if your books um, are, are, are stories, then. Um, if that's the case, your stories are um, should be um, our heroes. Um, I'll let you go. Um, have you got any other projects that you're working on at the moment that um, we can look forward to? Yeah, I've got a, another history coming out with the National Library. Um, working on that with Johnny Maynard. Um, I've got an a collection of short stories coming out soon, um, and uh, I've got a novel. Um, coming out early next year. You know, I'm I'm just a storyteller, mm. um, and that's what I want to get back to. You know, history's a story too, but I just I really love the stories and the the ones I'm, um, you know, the novels I'm working on at the moment. I'm really um, they're really central to my life, and um, um, they're what I'm wanting to do. The only reason I wrote history. Um, is because I could never read anything in Australian history that told a story about my family. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, I'd better write them. Instead of whinging about it, I'd better write them. Um, but I'd really like to get back to um, storytelling, you know, telling the stories of our culture. Well, um, you know, best of luck with that. Um, you're making a fantastic contribution, not only to your people, but uh, to Australia. Uncle Bruce Pascoe, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, brother. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.